Hello, and welcome to Ed Infinitum, the podcast that makes school the subject of study. I'm your host, David Nuremberg. This is Season 3, Episode 9, What Life We Can Make for Our Children, Reclaiming Education for Native Americans. As I record this episode, it's Thanksgiving week 2020, and because of that, I wanted to do a show that celebrated the achievements and resilience of Native American students and educators. I always struggle with how to handle Thanksgiving with my students and with my own children. I want to recognize what a sacred place it holds in the family and national culture of so many Americans, yet I also recognize my core responsibility as a teacher to engage students in learning actual history. Yes, English pilgrims who landed at Plymouth did have a shared dinner, as well as a tenuous alliance, with a number of Native Americans in the Wampanoag Confederacy under the leadership of Usamaquin. It was a strategic alliance, as Usamaquin was looking for help from the English to fight his tribal enemies, including the Narragansett Nation. It was far more of a Game of Thrones kind of political deal than Charlie Brown Thanksgiving Day special, complete with betrayals and eventual breaking of that alliance, culminating in King Philip's War, a three-year-long conflict in which over a thousand English colonists and more than 3,000 indigenous people were killed. And it ended in the seizure of nearly all lands formerly possessed not only by the Wampanoags, but also the Narragansetts, the Podunks, the Nipmunks, and a lot of the lands of the Mohegans as well. Subsequent Thanksgiving dinners were held by the colonists in celebration of the destruction of Indian villages and the mass killings of their inhabitants. It really wasn't until about 200 years later, when Abraham Lincoln was trying to reunite a fractured United States around shared traditions, that we get this re-engineering of Thanksgiving as this foundational symbol of indigenous and European friendship and cooperation. It's not that that didn't happen, but it is kind of akin in my mind to creating a national celebration commemorating a nice dinner in the 1980s between the Mujahideen and the Americans who were backing them against the Russians, and just deciding to never talk about 9-11 or the war on terror. Or worse, celebrating a time when some German politicians attended a Passover Seder in the 1930s without ever mentioning this little thing called the Holocaust? Call me crazy, but I believe that that kind of history matters. Thanksgiving is hardly the only place where Native American history just sort of gets erased from the national picture, at least as of the beginning of the last decade. The K-12 history curriculum standards in 27 states didn't feature any individual Native Americans, and 87% of state history standards didn't cover any Native American history after 1900. But it's not as if the indigenous peoples of our country just vanished after the turn of the last century. Today, there are still over 5 million Native Americans belonging to 573 different nations throughout the United States. Not only is their experience largely absent from what schools teach, it's also generally absent from what gets taught about the history of schooling in our country itself. And that history is full of both horror and resilience and rebirth. In this episode, We'll take a brief but hopefully significant look at all of that. Or in the words of Hunkpapa Lakota chief Sitting Bull, let us put our minds together and see what life we can make for our children. So, yeah, there is no way around it. The experience Native Americans have had in the various systems of education in the United States has been generally horrific. Schools, both public and private, acted as tools of forced assimilation, all in the context of a larger government policy of displacement and, at times, outright genocide. At the same time, it was in these schools that some indigenous people managed to form and draw strength from a new kind of political identity that eventually evolved into their creation and ownership of a more empowering kind of formal education. But let's start as close to the beginning as we can. 
Long before Europeans came to North America, the First Nations living here had employed their own various systems of education, largely involving oral storytelling and apprenticeships. According to Professor Raymond Cross at the University of Montana, quote, traditional Indian education emphasized learning by application and imitation, not by memorization of basic information. It also emphasized learning by sharing and cooperation, as compared with American education that emphasized competition and individualism. Tribal histories told and retold in Indian people's origin myths and how they spurred that people to great deeds. They located the Indian children within a loving and caring natural environment. Etiquette, including an abiding respect for his elders, was also a central part of an Indian child's traditional education." End quote. Cross's picture may read as slightly romanticized, but nevertheless, History, mythical narratives, and hands-on skills in the various trades, domestic, artisanal, martial, were preserved and passed on throughout decades and centuries among the indigenous communities of the Americas. When European settlers arrived, they created institutions designed to supplant this traditional education with indoctrination in Christian religion. The earliest example I could find of Native Americans attending European-style schooling was in 1640, where Friar Andrew White of the Society of Jesus created a mission school called St. Mary's in Maryland, with a mission to, quote, extend civilization and instruction to his ignorant race and show them the way to heaven, unquote. As far as I can tell, attendance at this school was voluntary, and some indigenous parents, figuring that their children could gain some advantages in learning the language and customs of these new colonists, enrolled them for this kind of education, including no less than the daughter of Tayak, chief of the local Pascato. Many other such schools cropped up across the colonies in the later decades of the 17th century. Chief Chachamek, the son of a Nobnocket Sakam, attended a grammar school in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and in 1661 became the first Native American to graduate from Harvard University's newly created Indian College, supported by the English Society for the Propagation of the Gospel. Chishatamik's thank you letter to the university is one of the contenders for the earliest extant piece of writing by a Native American on the continent. By the mid-18th century, Dartmouth and Wheelock colleges also were running their own Indian schools, which, like Harvard's, were mainly designed to indoctrinate Native Americans in a classical European education. Even the more progressive of these schools, such as the Hampton Normal and Agricultural School, whose mission was to educate and empower freed African-American slaves, and which also enrolled some Native Americans, considered assimilation to be the path to empowerment. If you recall from previous episodes of this podcast, the story of mass schooling in America doesn't really get going until the early to mid-1800s, and that's coincidentally around the time that President Andrew Jackson signed the Indian Removal Act into law. From 1830 to 1841, the act empowered the United States government to displace, often by force, tens of thousands of Native Americans from their lands in the Southeast in order to make those lands available for American expansion, in an act widely regarded today as tantamount to genocide. About 3,000 Native Americans died on the forced march called the Trail of Tears alone, with as many if not more perishing during the Seminole Wars that further extended American hegemony into the 1850s. In the wake of these wars and forced relocations, the majority of Native Americans now lived on federally managed Indian reservations, and it was there that the push began for mass education of Native American children via a system of newly created boarding schools. Although still operated by religious orders, unlike the largely church-funded operations of the past, these were government-subsidized, taxpayer-funded institutions. While previous endeavors to educate Native Americans were unabashedly assimilationist, these boarding schools took that to new extremes, employing abusive strategies including beatings and starvation to dissuade these young children from speaking their native language or practicing their spiritual beliefs. And that's not even counting the physical and sexual abuse that went on outside of official channels. By 1891, 
one of those rare federal interventions in the traditionally local control of school operations, the passage of a compulsory attendance law empowered federal officers to forcibly take Native American children from their homes to attend these boarding schools. Sometimes this did take the form of outright kidnapping. Other times it was pressure from the Commissioner of Indian Affairs through withholding clothing and food rations to any family who refused to voluntarily send its children. Nevertheless, many Native Americans still resisted, from mass refusals to enroll children to a painful sort of triage where local Native security officers would hide the best and brightest children and only turn over those they deemed less intelligent or otherwise impaired. Underground railroads of a sort cropped up to encourage and support students running away. In 1895, 19 men of the Hopi Nation were sent off to be imprisoned in Alcatraz, yes, Alcatraz, because they refused to send their children to boarding school. At the height of the boarding school movement, around 60,000 kids, about 83% of Indian school-age children across the United States, were enrolled in one of these boarding schools or another. The most famous of these schools, or perhaps infamous, was probably the Carlisle Indian Industrial School, whose founder and manager, General Richard Henry Pratt, was a mass of contradictions. A white officer who was instrumental in the organization of the Buffalo Soldiers, the famous 10th United States Cavalry Unit of freed African-American slaves, they're the ones Bob Marley sings about. Pratt very much considered himself a progressive when it came to issues of indigenous Americans, which is more than a little ironic given that the entire job of the Buffalo Soldiers was to fight Native American nations for control of the Great Plains. But at the same time, Pratt rose to the ranks of leadership of something called the Friends of the Indian Movement, where he spoke out against those who would consider Native Americans to be subhuman. A 1902 paper he presented at a conference was literally the first recorded use of the word racism. He coins it as something he feels is wrong, should not be happening. Of course, his solution is paternalistic at best and culturally genocidal at worst. It's basically, don't consider Native Americans subhuman. They could be just as good as any other Americans, assuming they completely abandon their cultural traditions and languages and speak and act just like white folks. Once they did that, Pratt felt, then all the Indians need are, quote, the chances of participation you have had, and they will just as easily become useful citizens, unquote. Again, for context, Pratt was consciously positioning himself in opposition to General Philip Sheridan, who gave us the quotation, the only good Indian is a dead Indian. The actual phrasing, if you're curious, is, quote, the only good Indians I ever saw were dead, unquote. Pratt made a speech in 1892 specifically in response to that statement. I'll quote a bit here. Quote, a great general has said that the only good Indian is a dead one. In a sense, I agree with the sentiment, but only in this, that all the Indian there is in the race should be dead. End quote. Yeah, that's a little hard to wrap your head around, perhaps. But it got distilled into the motto of the school that Pratt would one day begin. Kill the Indian, save the man. In other words, if you could somehow just wash out the stain of Native Americanness from Native Americans, you'd be left with this sort of blank template that could be filled with, well, Anglo-American culture, and everyone would get along just fine. Pratt had become convinced of the ability of schooling to do just that. When stationed at a fort in Florida, Pratt had run a school of sorts, although despite what you might hear today's students say in schools across the U.S. about their classes being torture, Pratt's classes kind of literally were. He would take Apache prisoners of war that were interned there and cut their hair, dress them in uniforms, and give them forced lessons in English and in military protocol. Remember those Native Americans who attended the Hampton Institute? Pratt was the one who arranged for them to go, along with 71 others, also former prisoners of war. At Carlisle, the school he would go on to run in Pennsylvania, 
Pratt instituted a hands-on curriculum in vocational training for boys, specifically in agriculture, and something like home ec for girls. The Native American students could take part in extracurricular activities like a school newspaper, a chorus, an orchestra, and various sports. Apparently, their performing arts groups became nationally famous. The message to Native American students was clear, that all sorts of opportunities awaited them, assuming they gave up their indigenous culture. The U.S. Bureau of Indian Affairs basically took Pratt's Carlisle model and used it as the template for what became its 25 fully federally funded non-reservation schools by 1902, the same year Pratt invented the word racism. Most of these were boarding schools with, again, not entirely voluntary attendance policies for their students. Native American students once enrolled were given haircuts, which for boys from many tribes was a huge cultural insult, and banned from speaking their native languages even to each other. Both religious instruction and corporal punishment were regular features. During summer and year-long externships, Native American students were placed outside of the community where they could learn on-the-job skills in the American mainstream, although too often these placements were exploitative and the students were used as cheap labor with minimal actual educational benefit. Yet even as he ran the school that was the model of this movement of Voketech institutions slash assimilation factory, Pratt was constantly speaking out against the Bureau of Indian Affairs, his employers. He opposed their policy of segregating Native Americans of different tribes and eventually opposed the reservation system entirely. Remember, Pratt's vision was of complete integration and assimilation of the indigenous into the mainstream, i.e. white Christian society. And to keep Indians apart in reservations in his mind was racist. Yes, remember, that's the word he used, in that it would forever keep Native Americans separate and unequal to their fellow countrymen. The whole reason Pratt picked the Carlisle Barracks in Pennsylvania for his school project to begin with was because he felt the Anglo-Americans there weren't as prejudiced against Indians as their fellows who lived farther west and would be more willing to accept Native Americans into the larger community. It is a bizarre tangle of ideas of equity and ideas of white supremacism in the field of education that has all too familiar and disturbing echoes in the way schools in our present day too often approach the education of BIPOC students. Too often, white educators still possess in their own minds the noblest of intentions of educating black and brown students right out of their primitive, destructive ways, urging them to adopt cultural practices of whiteness. In many unfortunate ways, Pratt kind of set the model, not only for Indian boarding schools, but also for a certain ethos of white saviorism that still blinds a great many idealistic white teachers to their participation and culpability in a system of structural oppression. As for Pratt, he eventually pushed the Bureau of Indian Affairs too far, and they forced his retirement in 1904. The Carlisle School continued to operate for another 14 years, and was eventually taken over by the Army War College. In 1961, it was declared a National Historic Landmark. But as will be the theme of this episode, these highly problematic, to say the least, boarding schools also gave birth to pan-Native American movements of pride and resistance. Whereas Pratt had objected to keeping indigenous people separated by tribe because he felt it was an obstacle to their eventual unity as American citizens, bringing Native peoples from 85 different tribes together under the same educational rubes wound up leading to their unity as an indigenous rights movement. The halls of Carlisle and Hampton and similar schools became places for indigenous students to develop an identity as activists, to converse, and eventually to become politically organized. After graduation, these cross-tribe political and social networks persisted and eventually gave rise to the Society of American Indians, the first Indian rights group created by and for Native Americans themselves. Founding member and Carlisle School alum, Dr. Carlos Moctezuma, the first Native American man to earn a Western medical degree, described his alma mater as, quote, Gibraltar, a place to think, observe, and decide, end quote. 
One of the society's biggest achievements was the successful lobbying for the passage of the Indian Citizenship Act of 1924, a.k.a. the Snyder Act, which finally made it possible for Native Americans to become official U.S. citizens. In a way, they brought Pratt's dream to fruition, but on their own terms, as opposed to a white supremacist vision of cultural assimilation. But since this is a podcast about education, I want to particularly focus on one 19th century Native American activist teacher who was an important forerunner of this pan-Indian movement, Sarah Winnemucca. Winnemucca was born in 1844 as a member of the Paiute Nation in Nevada, where her rather affluent and influential family were major proponents of friendly relations with the Anglo-American settlers. That didn't save them, though, when deteriorating relations between the Paiutes and the Anglo-Americans erupted in an outright war, and Sarah's mother, half-brother, and several other family members wound up being killed by the U.S. cavalry. The experience radicalized her, and she would spend the rest of her life as an activist and educator, delivering over 300 lectures across the country to mostly white audiences about the plight of the indigenous in general, and her own Paiute nation in particular. Winnemucca also served as an interpreter and a teacher for imprisoned Native Americans, I couldn't find out if she actually taught any of Pratt's unwilling students during his prison educator days, and I kind of doubt it since I don't think she ever made it as far southeast as Florida, but Winnemucca's efforts were at least contemporaneous with his. In 1883, Winnemucca linked up with none other than Elizabeth Peabody, Horace Mann, and Mary Peabody Mann. Episodes 1 and 2 of this season detail the foundational role that Mann played in the development of American public education as we know it as Elizabeth Peabody, one of the OGs of progressive education in America, gets some focus in season two, episode two. So you can feel free to put this on pause, go back, listen to those episodes, and then come back here to finish off this one. I'll be waiting. The Peabody sisters use their substantial wealth and public influence to assist in the publication of Winnemucca's autobiography, Life Among the Piutes, apparently not only the first known autobiography written by a Native American woman, but also claimed as the first U.S. copyright registration secured by a Native American woman. Winnemucca garnered no small amount of fame, dubbed by the media as the Paiute Princess, and managed, despite her husband being an inveterate gambler who constantly whittled away at her finances, to work with her brother to create a school for Indian children in Lovelock, Nevada, that specifically taught Paiute culture and language, named after the Peabody's who had been her allies and benefactors. Unfortunately, the onset of the boarding school system we just talked about earlier snapped up many of Winnemucca's would-be students, as well as eventually transferred her existing students, and her school was forced to close after just three years of operation. Today, there's an elementary school in Washoe County, Nevada, named after Winnemucca, as well as a statue of her in the U.S. Capitol Statuary Hall collection in Washington, D.C. But in some ways, Winnemucca's more enduring legacy is the model she provided, however briefly, of how formal education could be more than just an assimilatory force imposed from the Anglos, but instead something that Native Americans could claim, control, and remaster to serve as a tool of their own empowerment. As just one example of a school Winnemucca inspired, in 1937 a former Jesuit Franciscan school for Native American children reinvented itself as the Red Cloud Indian School, and over the decades incorporated instruction in English, Latin, and Lakota, and eventually drew Native students from around the country. It's still in operation today as an institution focused on Native cultural pride. Students take culturally relevant electives, including Native American literature and ecology, and the school has an on-campus museum featuring traditional Lakota art. In 1969, the U.S. Senate issued a report entitled Indian Education, a National Tragedy, a National Challenge, which basically admitted that the forced assimilation policies of Indian education in boarding schools did terrible harm to Native American self-image, sense of agency, cultural and socioeconomic well-being. And this was not the first such report. There was one in 1928, for example. 
But 1969 was when a junior high school teacher of Cherokee heritage in Oklahoma named Sparlin Norwood, working with the National Education Association and with a Minnesota professor named Rosemary Christensen, organized a national conference of Indian teachers in Oregon. This was followed by similar organizing conventions in Minnesota and eventually at Princeton University. These conferences brought together around 200 Native American educators from around the country, many of them graduates from those Indian boarding schools, to discuss how to coordinate and advance a culturally empowering vision of education for indigenous students. And together, they incorporated as the National Indian Education Association, or NIEA. Their mission was to, quote, convene educators to explore ways of improving schools and the educational systems serving Native children, to promote the maintenance and continued development of language and cultural programs, and to develop and implement strategies for influencing local, state, and federal policy and decision makers, end quote. In these goals, the NIEA was wildly successful. It was pretty much responsible for the founding of the academic discipline of Native American studies, and over the next decade, they achieved some amazing legislative victories through lobbying and activism, including successful bills supporting Native language instruction in schools as part of mandatory bilingual ed education programs, and ultimately aided the 1978 effort to successfully pass the Indian Child Welfare Act that gave Native American parents expanded legal rights to refuse forced enrollment in schools for their children. Because even by 1978, my lifetime, child protective services were still disproportionately removing Native American children from their homes. 1978 also saw the passage of the Tribally Controlled Colleges and Universities Assistance Act, which empowered Native American nations to create and operate their own institutes of higher education. The NIEA is still a very active organization in the present day, and there is still a long way to go before Native American children experience success in schools on parity with their non-Native counterparts. Only 65% of Native American students graduate high school today, which is the lowest graduation rate of any racial group of American students. Only 9.3% of all Native Americans earn a college degree. Native American students are 1.4 times more likely to be suspended from school than white students, 1.5 times more likely to die in a homicide or suicide, 1.8 times more likely to attend a high poverty school, and two times more likely to drop out of high school. But there is a lot of compelling research that culture-based education is positively correlated with Native American students' socio-emotional well-being and academic achievement. While approximately 620,000, or 93%, of Native children are currently enrolled in public schools, 45,000, or 7%, attend one of 184 tribally funded and operated schools located on 63 reservations in 23 states. And today, over 32 tribal colleges enroll over 30,000 Native American students. The challenge of undoing literally centuries of educational assault is massive and won't be solved quickly, but there are now hundreds of educators working expressly towards that goal. In the words of the NIEA website, quote, for too long, the education system has served as a weapon against Native Americans. It's time that it becomes a tool for writing and learning from our nation's wrongs, unquote. That we have a growing number of schools and educators dedicated to precisely that task is, I think, something to be properly thankful for this season. That's all the time we have for now. Class dismissed, and we'll see you next time. I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you liked this episode, please write us a review on iTunes and like us on our Facebook page. If you really liked this podcast, please consider visiting our website, www.ed-infinitum.com, and making a donation to keep it running. Otherwise, in the grand tradition of underfunded public schools, we'll be reliant on only what we can make from bake sales. 
The website is the place to go if you want to suggest a topic or send me an email for any other reason. Our theme music is Happy Schoolmaster by Mind Music ID. Thanks again for listening, and remember, every day brings us opportunities to learn something new. Still with us? Awesome, you get a treat. This week's intriguing education fact. The new incoming First Lady of the United States, Jill Biden, spent 13 years as an English teacher, also working as a reading specialist and a history teacher for disabled and psychiatrically hospitalized students. She holds two master's degrees, one in education and one in English. Bye.